Let's go ahead and pray one more time, and then uh, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for yet another day that we can gather, Lord, as your body, uh, to learn of you, to learn of your word. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would be among us today, instructing us and um, giving us greater understanding, sound understanding, bringing conviction where needed, bringing comfort where needed. And um, would you be glorified this day in your name? Amen. All right, so the people have spoken. I'm going to do my best to write clear for you guys. Um, My daughter specifically said she cannot take notes if she cannot read the board. So... I'll do better on that today. So last week, we looked at the first beatitude. We can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5 again. Um, But based on what we went through last week, how would you guys summarize poor in spirit? That's right. That's the key word, right? The spiritual bankruptcy that if you remember that word we use, patokos, was indicative of not just a, a material poor nature, but more specifically lacking that spiritual worth, right? Today we're turning our attention to the second beatitude. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4 we see, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And as we approach this beatitude, and really even any of the others that follow, Right, We must understand that these are not two disconnected thoughts. While separate verses in, in Scripture, we must see that really, as we talked about, poor in spirit was the foundation that is leading to all the others. And so that's what we hope to walk through. So first we're going to look at um, an examination of this morning. What is it to mourn? Uh, how are we to understand what is here presented? Well, first and foremost, just like last week, um, I'm starting off with the fact that it's countercultural. Now, this seems obvious probably on anything in Scripture that we see is likely to be countercultural. But it's a point that must be emphasized because why? We live in the culture, we're bombarded with cultural thoughts every single day. And so we must remind ourselves not what the culture says is right. Not what the culture says is the blessed way leads to blessedness, but what Scripture says. And so here we're told that it's those who mourn that are truly blessed. What are some of the things we hear from the culture um, that, that would say um, where true blessedness lies? Or, or when they're confronted with the thought of, oh, we should be mourning, what do we hear from the culture, do you think? What are some of the things that they say? Well, yeah, that's how they would look at it, right? And so their idea is, look, don't let negative thoughts creep into your mind. We have enough negativity already. Um, I actually saw it. We stopped to get a smoothie, and on their window, the, the phrase read, good vibes only, right? Like, that's what you see in the culture today. Um, don't think on anything that would bring sorrow, right? Um, their mantra, if you remember the mantra last week for poor in spirit was what? God helps those who help themselves. The mantra, I suppose, for this one would be eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Like that's their mindset. Don't allow any morning to come into your mind. Just have fun. Um, but we must understand that this way of blessedness that the world describes 
And that blessedness, that true blessedness that we know of the kingdom are diametrically opposed to each other. They're like two magnets, right, that repel each other. They're not just two neutral positions there for us to choose, but they're actually pressing away from each other is the imagery you could think of there. And so we must understand that what Christ is saying, that if you want to be blessed, if you want true lasting comfort, mourn. Next, we understand that this is spiritual uh, in nature. Spiritual in nature. We understand in this life, beset with sin, but beset by the results or the, 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 the due to sin, there's many things to mourn, right? What are some of the things that we think of to mourn? Death, right? All types of death. Uh, family member, friends. I mean, think about this. Even people jump on Twitter when a celebrity dies. They don't even know the celebrity, right? And it's like all these condolences going out, right? Um, loss of a job, maybe tough financial conditions, maybe due to a loss of a job. What's that? Missed expectations, right? The, the things that we set for ourselves. Uh, wars, sickness, right? I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Um, there's calamity everywhere. We're confronted with it on a daily basis. Yet in this beatitude about mourning, I don't believe it's any of those things that Christ has in mind. Um, it's not that we can't be comforted when we have a relative who knows Christ and they die, right? We can certainly be comforted in that sense of knowing that they've gone to be with the Lord, but what Christ is doing here is not looking at general sorrow, um, but instead looking at the spiritual condition yet again, right? It's not the material poor, and it's not the, the general sorrow that we see, but it's, there's a spiritual sorrow that must take place. If you recall last week, uh, we looked at Isaiah 57, 15. And we, we considered where Christ dwelt, right? It says he dwells on a, whole, uh, on a holy hill, a high hill, but also with who? And we applied it to, to those who were lowly in spirit, that that's who he dwelt with. But to show even that these two go together, it's the lowly of spirit and who? The contrite of heart. That's who he dwells with. Contriteness of heart, we understand, is this aspect of um, a feeling of, it's, it's a feeling and an expression of sorrow. And we will get into discussing what type of sorrow here shortly. But here's what we read in Psalm 51:17: The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So right before this verse, we're told it's not the sacrifice of burnt offerings that God delights in or that he takes pleasure in. It's not these outward manifestations of quote-unquote sacrifice. In a sense, who cares about these outward manifestations if there's no true sorrow, if there's no true remorse? And so what we see is the true sacrifices that he desires are, of, are these inward manifestations of contriteness of heart. In the very core of who we are, the very core of our being, that's where he wants contriteness. It's don't, don't show me your outward 
acts while your heart is far from me. Right? Be contrite in heart for, first. Right? That's where it starts. And then that change should lead to outward actions. Third, it must be a gospel-centered morning. must be gospel-centered. And this probably goes without saying, right? Um, but I do believe the point has to be made. Uh, it's key because there's, there's an area of caution. There's a need for carefulness. Because as we truly see our condition, or as people come to see it, um, there can be an aspect in which this turns into what people identify as morbid introspection, right? Or even what becomes more of a selfish introspection. It's all about them and how they, fe- how they feel. And ultimately, that can lead to despair, right? Uh, and, and it really should. If we're not looking to the gospel, there's no hope outside the gospel. Looking anywhere else leads to despair. Uh, there are people who will see their sin, have an understanding of their wickedness, see all the evil of their heart, but not look to Christ. And they're driven to despair. Um, We see that, unfortunately, when people in this world take their own life. Um, There was a guy the other day I was reading, took his own life, and said that he had to deal with his own demons. So he clearly saw the evils of his heart. But he didn't consider the gospel, and he didn't look to Christ. Therefore, we must remember that all of our mourning must have an eye to the gospel and an eye to Christ. For it is in the gospel that we find our hope, and it's in Christ that we find our comfort. Now, I'm going to draw this out here. There are various types of mourning that we see in Scripture um, but I want to focus on the two categories we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So let's go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And then specifically uh, verses 8 through 11. Is there anybody who would like to read that passage of Scripture? Keith, go ahead. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow. For only for a while, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Mm. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, hath produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. Mm. That's good. So based on that, 
from that passage, what are the two types of mourning that we see? That's right. So we have worldly and we have godly. And what I want to do is I want to consider these two types of sorrow specifically. Um, what we see from this from this verse is also from this verse, but also as we think through these two types of sorrow, how do they compare and contrast? So I'll start it off with worldly sorrow is obviously man-centered. Obviously, godly sorrow then, conversely, would be God-centered, Christ-centered. What's that? Right. Right. So, Man is concerned when they have sorrow. We see it on the news. When they have sorrow, what do they do? They'll send out a tweet or make some type of release, right? Where they say, oh, no, no, I didn't mean what I said. I misspoke, right? And all this, right? Because why? Their concern is how man views them. Their perception before man is what they're concerned about. They're worried about loss of likes on social media. They're worried about potential earnings losses, Right? Whereas the one who exhibits godly sorrow, right, is concerned with what? That's right. And not only how God sees them, I would say there would not even be a, a care or concern of how you're viewed by man. The focus is such or so theocentric, so focused on God, that it's as if man fades into the background. And we're going to look at an example of worldly sorrow and godly sorrow from Scripture once we move through this to kind of bring to light, you know, uh, this a little bit more clearly. How about, you guys think of any, I have a list here, I can run through it if you want, but um, you guys are welcome to add to it. Repentance. So I'm going to put that down here because this is the, the end result, right? The end result is repentance here, Right? And what's the end result over here that we see? Death. What else you guys got? Any? That's right. In a sense, it's like if it, nobody found it out, right, they wouldn't have cared. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And usually what we see them do is what? They make excuses, right? So over here you could say excuses. Versus what does the godly person do? Or the one who's got godly sorrow? There's confession, right? But it's, um, they own their sin. They own it. They realize what they've done, right? How about the object of the mourning? More goes in line with what you were saying. They generally are mourning the consequences What is the godly sorrow mourning? Yeah, the reputation of God. I didn't even have that, but I said it was more like they're, they're mourning the sin itself, right? It's focused on, on mourning uh, the sin, but I think as well as that, and this is where I think it even falls into the, the, the God-sinner, they're mourning that they've offended a holy, righteous God. 
Yeah, you kind of like, in a sense, like you've, you've, yeah, you've brought like reproach to the name of God, right? That's a good point. How about, this is obviously, because this leads to death, this is hopeless or despair-filled. And this obviously, if it's the opposite, is probably going to be something like hope-filled. Now, we've got to keep in mind, in this, even Paul brings this out in this, it's not sorrow alone that he was pleased with or that he was happy that they came to, right? What was he happy that they came to? That's right. That that should be the end purpose of our sorrow is that it leads to repentance. That's right. That's right. And so here, though, you can see that's not the case. This type of sorrow doesn't lead to that. It leads to death, ultimately. And um, it's despair-filled. And that's why it's essential. When we sorrow, there must be an eye to the gospel. Yes. Dang, I guess she's ahead of me. That's okay. That's good, though. Go with it. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) Same thing. He, I mean, he had tears, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're not immune to this, right? I mean, we're not perfect. And so there may be times where we are despairing in a sense because we're not looking to Christ. We're not turning to Scripture. And we're, in a sense, doing this type of introspection Right, which I said leads to like a selfishness. We're focused on ourselves and how it's making us feel and what are, how it's impacting us. And and that often arises, I think, because we will then if I think if we truly think it through, we're not keeping an eternal perspective. Right? We're caught up in the here and now, we're caught up in the daily, all the trials and tribulations and whatever we face, and we take our eyes off of the true purpose, the focused purpose, we kind of fall into this mindset of the world where we, we kind of buy into what they're saying. Oh, we should be happy now and we should be laughing and we should have all this joy. Now we should have joy, right? But the type of joy that the world offers is a whole other thing. But we can easily fall into that and that can become our mindset. And so the purpose of breaking something like this down is to hopefully like, even stir us up by way of reminder of what true worldly and godly repentance looks like. So, like was mentioned, there's a couple examples. Um, Judas, if we turn to Matthew 27 and verses 3 through 5. If somebody would like to read uh, 27... Three through five, who? Oh, go ahead. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he was into him, he felt remorse and returned and put a piece of his silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying him for blood. But they said, What is that to us? He did that himself. And he threw mm. the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and went away and hanged himself. Mm. 
So there's a couple things to see from this, right? We clearly identify this as worldly mourning, right? But what is interesting is, in this case, he didn't even make excuses, right? He actually said, like, I have sinned. He saw his sin, and he acknowledged his sin. The problem is, is he did not look to Christ, right? And he was filled with despair and went out and hanged himself. And in this case, this particular sin led to like immediate physical death and like immediate eternal death, right? Um, and then godly sorrow. And I only, I kept it to two, um, primarily just because of where we'd probably be on time. But there are, I'm sure, many examples. Ahab, um, who's that? Achan, he knew he sinned, though. He even acknowledged it, and then obviously the, the earth uh, opened up and swallowed him, right? But um, was that Korah? But it wasn't it somebody. Oh, burned. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and there is Peter. We know Peter um, had true godly sorrow. Why? Was it his tears? Huh? Right, but we know it was true. Well, he did repent, right? And then we also see the Lord restored him, right? That's right. The Lord went and even restored him. That's true, right? That's true. <laughs> but, but the point is this. Mere tears being shed isn't always indicative of godly sorrow, right? Mm. Yeah, but even pray, like praying for him beforehand, right? Yeah, yeah that your faith may, shall not fail you. That's good. So the next one I want to look at is, is David. So let's turn to Psalm 51. And while you're turning there, also say, uh, we, look, we read through the account of Josiah this morning. You want another picture of true godly sorrow? I highly recommend you go read the story on Josiah. The way it actually ends up describing it is that really there's none before him, none after him that turned to the Lord God like he did. Um, and look at the timeline. He was eight when he became king, saved around 1617. Two years after that, they found the book of the law. So look at the timeline and see, you know, the godly sorrow that was there and then what it ultimately led to. It wasn't like the previous, I guess I'm giving it to you, but it wasn't like the previous kings that like went and maybe took down some of the high places and so forth. Josiah went in, cleared out the high places, desecrated them, right, so they couldn't even be used and so forth, and then took the bones, right, and burned them. I mean, think about that. Like that, I mean, when you want to talk about thoroughgoing repentance, <laughs> Josiah is a great, uh, great picture, so I recommend reading through that. But Psalm 51, um, really the whole of the psalm, this is probably a good, like the quintessential, quintessential passage that we can turn to in looking at godly sorrow and repentance. Um, really through the whole of this psalm, these are the words we see, these personal pronouns, I, me, my. Those three, three, those three things. We don't 
see a focus towards really anybody else. And the only time he mentions someone else is so that he would be able to teach them. I, me, my. That's ownership of sin. That's a looking how you stand before God. So who would like to read verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 51? Go ahead, Landon. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Mm. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Mm. So what do we see here? What do we see when we've broken this down? What do we see compared to what's up here and in this passage? That's right. What does he say? Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. Right? Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me or wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That's right. There's not excuses. What's that? That's right. Because what does he say? Against you, you only have I sinned. Now we know that that's, obviously he sinned against others. Right? Bathsheba, number one. Uriah, as well. But what is his focus? Not man. First and foremost, God. And what's incredible is that he wrote this, of course, after that. So it mm. doesn't even speak to the burden that was on his shoulders or on him before he wrote the song. He does in other psalms, though, right? Like, there, there's an aspect in which he even talks about, like, when I was silent about my sin, like, my bones wasted away, things. So there was definitely, we not, need to know that we try to hide sin, push it, you know, not acknowledge it, right? If we're truly the Lord's, it's going to eat away at us, and we're going to know. We're not going to have peace. We're not going to have comfort. And so this is true, genuine repentance that we see here. Um, he even says down in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. It is a thoroughgoing repentance, a thoroughgoing confession, and a thoroughgoing sorrow. right you guys got this here because i'm gonna have to erase it to actually maybe i don't in case we have to reference back to it i'll just write the points over here the third aspect that i want to focus on right we've we've essentially defined mourning we've looked at it right uh, uh examples of worldly and godly right uh we've understood what our culture has said so what should be in the third place the object or objects of um, our mourning. What is it that we should mourn? I think it's threefold. I think there's three things. The first, obviously, that comes to mind, but I have that second. It is right. That's right. What's that? Grieving the Spirit, we should mourn. Hopefully, we're not 
in the practice of grieving the Spirit necessarily because we should confront our sin and address our sin and not continue in it. Um, but the first thing I have is our condition. The first thing is our condition. And I think that this is right, um, although, you know, maybe people have a different mindset, but I think in the immediate context of this passage, it's our condition that we mourn, right? Because right before this, we read about blessed is the man who is poor in spirit. And so it's not just seeing your state and acknowledging um, that you have no spiritual worth, um, but it is um, uh, mourning over that condition. Very simple point, very basic point, but we mourn our condition. We see that we are spiritually destitute, spiritually needy, spiritually bankrupt, and we don't just say, oh, okay, we're good. But there's a mourning that should come from that. Um, next, which was mentioned, and it's, you know, like I said, probably the most obvious, is we should mourn our sin. Unfortunately, um, as I've thought through this, um, it's not, I think, only the world um, that has an issue with this. I think that there's a lot of issues even within the church when it comes to mourning our sin. I think um, with, obviously, the, an- the rise of antinomianism um, and an overemphasis on the grace of God has led to people becoming very comfortable with sin. Um, people, um, you know, I was talking to Amanda about it this morning, but it's like you're holding it in your bosom, right? And then she brought out this idea of, you know, when you're holding a baby in your bosom, it's like you're admiring it, you're enjoying it, you're loving it. And I think in some cases, even within the church, um, even as Christians, there's too much of a closeness to sin, too much of a willingness to be partakers in sin. Um, and I think that this comfor- comfortability um, with sin arises because of three things. Um, I think there's a low view of sin. There's a lack of mourning because we do not have a proper understanding of sin. We don't look at it as what it truly is. Um, secondly, I think it's due to a low view of God and His holiness. So it's not just sin, right? Because who's the sin against? Well, it's against God, right? And if we're willing to sin against God and not mourn over it and kind of be friends with it, then what is our view of God and His holiness? And finally, this is connected to the second one, but on top of all this, I think that it arises from a low view of Christ and His sacrificial death. We understand, our eyes have been opened. We see what Christ has done and we understand the penalty and payment that was required for sin, right? And yet, we welcome it or we make excuses for it and we allow it to reside more often than it should inside of us. Yes, go ahead.
That's good, though. Yeah. That's good. That's going to be the third point. So, you guys are tracking well. You're tracking well. But, um, do you have the water, actually? No, that's good. Thanks. Um, and I think that there's three things, just to, as we move through this point, um, you know, that lead, that essentially what we're trying to do in those three things, right? A low view of sin, a low view of God, a low view of Christ and his sacrificial death um, is we're trying to straddle the line between friendship with the world while at the same time trying to maintain our friendship or communion with God. Um, and James had some pretty strong language in regard to this mentality. So let's go ahead and turn to James chapter 4. There are many different directions I think that you can go with something like this. You can talk about mourning for sins in particular and, and so forth. And really any of the books that you pick up on a topic like this will talk about that. Watson's book goes in length about all these different things we should be mourning. But as I was preparing this and looking over this verse, this is one of those things that we need to be on guard against is this friendship with the world, this friendship with sin. So who would like to read James 4, verses 4 through 9? You got? Uh, go ahead, Chris. 4 through 9. All right, so what do we see here? Well, I think first and foremost, we see there's a double-mindedness in this people, you know, group that he's writing to. Um, there's competing interests, so to say. Namely, the idea is this, right? These individuals thought that there could somehow be friendship with the world and at the same time friendship with God. And James says no. Look at what he actually calls them in verse... Uh, Verse 4, what does he say? What's the description of him that he get, of them that he gives? Adulteresses. Right? That's pretty strong language. That's not like, hey, you know, you're kind of like getting a little too close to the world, right? And looks at it as a light thing. He says that essentially you've been united with Christ and you trying to separate, separate from Christ and in a sense be friends with the world. You're adulteresses. That's very strong language. And he says... Following that, right, if we walk through it, do you not realize that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And therefore, if you seek to be a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. The complete opposite of what you think you can do and still maintain that 
is not the case, right? Like you become enemies of God. There's a hostile mindset. If you fraternize with the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And so what does he call them to do? This language is very clear. First, he calls them to repentance. And then what should they do in verse 9? Yeah, look at the language. Be miserable and mourn and weep. And he gives some ideas here. The, the laughter you have, let that be mourning. The joy you have, turn it to gloom. Think about that. We're supposed to have joy as Christians. What is the joy that he's talking about? That's right. The joy that you think that you get when you sin, the things you think that offer true happiness and laughter and fun, right? Turn that to gloom because at the end of the day, it offers you no hope. Mourn now. Very reminiscent of what Christ is saying. Mourn now. So his exhortation is ultimately, don't be deceived. There's no joy with sin. Weep and mourn while you have time. Weep and mourn while comfort may be found from such a disposition. Because there will come a time, and we're going to discuss this in the comfort section, if I can get there, is this aspect that all will eventually weep at some, all people will weep. It's when do you do the weeping? All will mourn. When do you do the mourning? Okay. In addition to this, as far as mourning our sin, this isn't a one-time thing. We come to Christ and we mourn, just like with poor in spirit is a continuous action. But know this, that the more that we grow in grace, does the mourning become more or less? That's right. Because why? We have a greater understanding of Christ, a greater understanding of his work, a greater understanding of our condition. Hopefully eyes to see ways in which we sin more and more and more, right? And so in a sense, though, while the morning, while the morning grows, what grows with it? Grace and comfort. So greater morning, greater comfort. Because why? Not only do you see a greater aspect of your sin, but you understand the work of Christ in a greater way. And so they both, in a sense, grow together. All right, third point, we're going to move through this relatively quick, um, is sins of others. You're right, that is the verse that I have down, Psalm 119, 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because they do not keep your law. Short verse, powerful verse about where his concerns were. His concerns were with the fact that God was being, you know, um, you know, not d- disparaged and not thought highly of. His law was cast aside. That was Psalm 119, 136. What I like here is it's streams of water. Spurgeon actually notes this, um, that it was um, not drops of tears, but torrents of woe that David shed here. Torrents of woe. Because he understood too, not just that God was being disparaged, but what was also awaiting them who did not look to God. An understanding of, of, of the wrath to come. Jeremiah, as we know, was called the weeping prophet. 
Uh, imagine this. You see the call in chapter 1 that was on his life that he was appointed to be a prophet to the nations. He was also told that they would not listen to him. Imagine being given that task. Like, you're going to go for 23 years and you're going to preach at them and prophesy and warn them and they're not going to listen to you. And you know the wrath that is coming. And so when we read in 9.1, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night. And I've offered sacri- um, sorry, um, day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He acutely understood what was to come as a prophet. Um, and look, at he wasn't disinterested. It wasn't apathy. It wasn't like, well, thankfully that's not me, right? Um, but it was a mourning the sin of others, the outcome that they face. And then finally, I think our ultimate example is Christ, right? He came, um, and we probably could have just looked at him alone, but if you look at when he came, there are no instances in Scripture of him laughing. Now, I'm not saying... (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that we can't laugh, that we can't have joy, that we can't get together and have a good time, things like that, right? But I think what we can draw from that is what should our overall demeanor be? He had a work to do and he did it. His face was set to it. We have a work to do. And we can so easily get caught up and oh, I want to do this and I want to do that, right? Do we have that same mindset? A seriousness, a soberness to our daily walk? Because we should. That's what's been modeled even just briefly from these three. And finally, the blessing or the comfort that, um, that, is, that is to those who mourn, those who mourn properly, those who have godly mourning, is first and foremost, this isn't something we conjure up in ourselves that we somehow have to be the mourners and the one who bring the comfort. It's something that instead is bestowed upon us. Um, this is actually con- uh, conveyed, I believe, um, in the... In the Greek, the fact that the passive is used, it's not an active where we do something. It's actually something that's done to us. So we mourn and comfort is bestowed. Um, If we want, we looked at um, Isaiah 61 last week and we considered verse one, right? About how he was proclaiming good news to the afflicted, the afflicted in spirit. Well, this week, if you want to turn over there quickly, we can read a little bit further. Isaiah 61. And we'll start just in verse 2, just for time. The end of verse 2. This is also why he came. It was all these, these twos that he had to do. And it says this, to comfort all who mourn. So that's why Christ came, to comfort all who mourn. And get this, to grant those who mourn in Zion. So there's a granting, there's a bestowal that takes place. That those who mourn, will receive comfort. It will be bestowed upon them. And look at this. To give them a garland instead of ashes. There's a crown that's given. There's oil of gladness instead of mourning. A mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. What an amazing picture, right? Like true comfort. But this isn't just comfort that comes, um, that, that's, a, that's a future hope, right? 
But we know it's a hope for now because why? Who has he given us? The Comforter, right? We've given us his Spirit who is called the Comforter. And so this life essentially sets up like this. We mourn, we repent, and we are comforted. And then it generally starts over again in this life. In this life, we have this constant struggle, but in the life to come, unhindered comfort. In this life, like Paul says in Romans 7, we're beset continually by the things that we, we ought to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, we do. And that's day in and day out, day in and day out. And so what we do is this. And it's not that it's just this and this, and we wait for this. It's this, this, and this now, though not in the fullest sense. There's still a full consummation to come. And that's the blessed hope that we wait for. And finally, there's a great reversal. Earlier, I mentioned that all will mourn. Right? Um, consider Luke six twenty-five in the second half. It says, Woe to you who laugh now. Because why? You shall weep and mourn. So the counterpart to this in Luke's shorter uh, exposition of the Beatitudes is, yes, there's blessed are you who mourn, but later on he gives these woes. And in these woes, he says, you can laugh now. And that's what, think of James's warning. Turn your laughter now, your joy now to gloom and mourning. Right? Because do it while there's still time. Because if you continue, right, and, and you show yourself to be in the world and you're laughing now, there's a time in which you will mourn and weep, but there'll be no comfort. It'll just be an eternal mourning and weeping. So what is short here, the mourning is for a time, and then we have eternal comfort, right? It's reversed. You have laughter for a time, and then you have eternal weeping. So, yeah. Go ahead. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's like, would you rather just for maybe 70 years, let's say it was the worst 70 years you could have, like the Lord has you laid so low, but you know him. Because at the end of the day, eternal comfort. Versus you could have the best 70 years on this life. And that's all it is, is 70 years, because it's eternal weeping, eternal mourning. All right, let's go worship.